How we eat and what we eat is the most critical part of our lives. But how much do we really know about our food and how it lands on our plates? I'm Nicole Perkins, founder and CEO of Prima Foodie. I'm on a mission to shed light on the inner workings of our food system and the changes we need to see for a healthier future. Here, I speak to leaders, experts, and passionate advocates in the fields of science, agriculture, nutrition, integrative health, and more to learn about what needs to change about our food system and the way we eat. We talk about how we can make fresh, whole, healthy, nourishing food more accessible for every single one of us. So thanks for joining me on this mission, and welcome to the Prima Foodie Podcast. Today I have Dr. Marion Nessel. She is, gosh, so many things. I often describe you as the glorious dynamo of food and nutrition, but maybe that's not even strong enough. Dr. Nessel has been advocating for our health, for transparency in our food system for many, many years. Dr. Nessel, when did you first become interested in food and nutrition? Well, I've always been interested in food because I'm one of those people who loves to eat. You know, some people live to eat and I'm one of them. I didn't really get interested in the politics of food until the early 1990s when I went to a meeting of the National Cancer Institute where they were talking about smoking and diet and cancer prevention. And I saw a group of anti-smoking advocates. These were physicians and scientists, international, who were working on anti-smoking initiatives. And they did slide talks of cigarette marketing all over the world. And you know, I knew that cigarette companies marketed. And I even knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I never paid any attention to it before. And these speakers at this meeting showed slides of cigarette marketing in places where I just never noticed it. It was so ubiquitous that I never paid any attention to it. And I walked out of that meeting thinking we should be doing this for Coca-Cola, you know, that we nutritionists should be looking at the way that food companies were marketing their products, especially to children. Again, because nobody was paying any attention to it. And I was going to a large numbers of meetings on childhood obesity in which the main message that was being communicated was, we have to figure out a way to teach mothers how to feed their kids better over and over again. Let's blame it on moms. If moms would only manage what their kids were eating, we wouldn't have a problem. As if food industry marketing had nothing to do with either people's choices of foods or kids' demands for certain kinds of products. And so I started paying attention. And it wasn't very hard to do. You know, I'd go places and take photographs of food marketing and go to meetings and listen to what people were saying and started writing articles about it and eventually put those articles together into Food Politics, the book that came out in 2002. Many parallels to today. I want to ask if things are better, but are they better? In some ways, yes. I mean, many more people are aware of marketing. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote Food Politics was I never wanted to go to another meeting on childhood obesity and not hear something about food industry marketing. And that has certainly happened. I think everybody understands now 
that food companies are trying to get people to buy their products. And one way you get people to buy your products is by getting kids to ask for them. You know, parents are really happy to make their kids happy. And if that's all it takes, nobody is going to argue about it. And it's the system is so insidious and so prevalent that it's become normal in schools to reward kids with candy and treats, for example. And you know, there have been studies now that have added up the calories from sugar that kids are being fed in schools you know, with nobody really paying attention. And everybody thinks it's great that kids have candy, but the quantities are astounding. And the problem with candy, it's great in small amounts, but if you eat a lot of it, it's calories that you don't notice. So let's back up just a little bit, just for listeners who don't know your background. Give us your short version of, you've had a lot of different positions, both in academia and in policy shaping. How did that come about? Can you tell us how you describe your career? Well, I've just written a memoir that's coming out in October 2022, in which I answer that question in enormous detail. But the short version is, I have a doctoral degree in molecular biology. I was interested in becoming a scientist. I couldn't become a scientist because I had two small children, and there may be women scientists who were able to manage a scientific career in a family, but I just couldn't. I gave it up and took a teaching job. And I was given a nutrition class to teach. It was like falling in love and I've never looked back. I've always been interested in politics. And so I love nutrition for its dependence on science, its dependence on social and cultural factors, its dependence on politics for that matter, and anything that you can think of has to do, any major problem in society that you can think of has something to do with food. Food is an entry point into talking about problems of society that I think are really important. And I really love doing that. I went from teaching that course to teaching another one and then going to a medical school to teach nutrition to medical students. I did that for 10 years. I then went back to public health school to get a credential in nutrition because I didn't have any credentials in nutrition and then was hired as a senior nutrition policy advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services for a couple of years in the late 1980s, where I edited the Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health, and then went from there to NYU, where I've been ever since, until I retired in 2017. I want to back up a little bit to your time, your 10 years teaching medical students nutrition. Mm. Has that changed much? No. At the time that I was teaching nutrition to medical students at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, it had already been, this was in the, this was in the mid-70s. This goes back a really long time. It had already been 20 years since the first American Medical Association meeting on teaching nutrition to medical students. It was well known that nutrition was not covered in medical education and that something needed to be done about that. And so that was in the mid-70s. In 2014, I wrote a paper with a former colleague on why we need to teach nutrition to medical students. And it's an ongoing issue. 
because the structural barriers have not changed. Nutrition, well, preventive medicine is not reimbursed in our healthcare system. We don't have a healthcare system that focuses on prevention and that focuses on trying to make disease not happen because there's no profit in it. We have a for-profit healthcare system that is just exactly what you don't want, which is let's let people get sick and make money off of treating them. And that system hasn't changed. And there are other barriers as well. Who's going to teach it? Nutrition is much more complicated, I think, than most people realize. Everybody eats, everybody thinks they're an expert on nutrition, but in fact, it's pretty complicated stuff. And I mean, the basics are really simple, so simple that Michael Pollan can do it in seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that really takes care of it. But it's when you start getting into the details or trying to understand food labels or trying to understand calories, for heaven's sakes, These things require a fair amount of knowledge and understanding, and I would say a great deal of common sense. I'm not sure common sense is something that's very prevalent in our society right now, but that makes nutrition very difficult. And, you know, so many different kinds of diets, 50 to 100,000 food products, how do you make choices among them? Those are really hard issues. And for people with chronic disease, particularly those who have obesity-related chronic disease, doing anything about it from a dietary standpoint is difficult. The entire society is set up to get people to eat more, not less. So trying to fight the entire food system you know, a food system in which agricultural policy has nothing whatsoever to do with health policy. These things are completely divorced. They shouldn't be, but they are. Makes it difficult for individuals to fight these entire systems on their own. And that's why I, I teach food advocacy. And I'm very interested in helping advocates effectively work towards food systems that are more focused on health and sustainability. Three questions. Can you first talk about the juxtaposition between nutrition policy and agricultural policy? But first, what is the agricultural department? What's its purpose? The Department of Agriculture, USDA, its major purpose is to promote industrial agriculture and make sure that Americans have enough food to eat. I mean, that's its historic purpose. Over so it's the business. Year, it's a business purpose. I mean, well, it became a business purpose. Its initial function was to make sure that there was enough food in the country to feed people. That's a very important purpose. Over time, it became, I would say, captured by corporate agriculture, and now a big part of the function of the Department of Agriculture is to promote industrial agricultural production with small farm. And that means industrial agricultural production means corn, soybeans, cotton, canola, sugar beets, those kinds of things, the ingredients of processed foods. There's very little agriculture money goes into promoting small and regional farming practices or fruits and vegetables, for example. Fruits and vegetables are specialty crops. 
for the Department of Agriculture and they don't get much support. But by far, I mean, one of the great ironies of American history, 80% of the Department of Agriculture's budget goes to what used to be food stamps and is now the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, the last rem, the major remnant of the country's welfare system for the poor. That comes out of the Department of Agriculture. You know, it's absolutely the wrong place for it, but there it is. And it dominates spending. So they're in business to make money, 80% of which that money is going to feed the people that they're helping to get sick. Well, in that sense, yes, that rates of chronic disease are much higher among the poor in our society. And I would say our food system contributes to their poor health in many different ways. So 20% of the spending of the Department of Agriculture goes for industrial agriculture. And its main effect is to encourage overproduction of basic food commodities, which reduces the cost of those basic food commodities and makes junk foods cheaper than fruits and vegetables. You know, so that in that sense, it contributes to the health problems that we have in our society today. And you know, I think if in a rational society, you would link agricultural policy to health policy and make sure that healthier foods were cheaper and more available to everybody. But that's not how the system currently works. And can you talk about subsidies? It's my understanding that sugar is still subsidized, corn, soybean, which are to me and what you're talking about and food contributing to chronic disease it seems just bizarre that we are subsidizing sugar. Well, we don't subsidize sugar. We actually have a tariff system for sugar that makes the cost of sugar higher in the United States than anywhere else in the world. But it's not enough higher for anybody to care. It averages about $10 per capita over the course of a year. Nobody even notices. And so there's no public outcry about the way we deal with sugar. The real problem is corn and soybeans, because these commodities are the basic ingredients in processed food. Corn is the basic ingredient in ethanol, and both are used as feed for animals. So we essentially have a food system in which all of the subsidies go for feed for animals or fuel for automobiles, and food has nothing to do with it. I think we need a food system that focuses on making food for people uh, cheaper, more available, and healthier. Why not? Yes. What is the Farm Bill, and why should people know what it is? Well, the Farm Bill is the piece of legislation that governs the Department of Agriculture's expenditures. It is an enormous piece of legislation. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages of tiny type in the Federal Register. There's a new Farm Bill every five years. Every single word in it is heavily politicized. Every section of it has lobbyists that are working to make sure that their program is covered by the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill covers hundreds and hundreds of programs. I once tried to count them and had to give up after 100. There were just so many. And each one is very complicated. Only a lobbyist could understand it. No one person could possibly understand what the Farm Bill is about. 
And so individuals have their pieces of the farm bill that they're most concerned about. And remember, the farm bill covers the supplemental nutrition assistance program, 80% of the funding, as well as insurance, conservation, horticulture. I mean, anything that you trade, anything that you can think of is in there. And they're starting to work on the next farm bill now. It's a big miss. You're, you're touching on something that I want to ask about, which is why our food system is so dysfunctional. Well, it's dysfunctional because it grew up over history. It's not as if a committee of people with diverse perspectives sat down in a room and said, let's create a food system that is healthy for people and that also keeps business functioning, supports agriculture. I mean, I, I once taught a course on the Farm Bill, and on the first day of class, I asked the class, What should a Farm Bill do? And they had no trouble coming up with the obvious. You know, our agricultural system should support farmers. It should support farm workers. It should promote a healthy public and promote a healthy environment. It shouldn't pollute. It shouldn't cause problems. It should do, you know, a sort of obvious things. But that's but not other how countries can do this. Uh, not very well. I don't think any country does it very well. Some do it better than others. But ours is particularly dysfunctional because we have allowed corporate agriculture to take over. And because we have this weird business of having food assistance in the farm bill when it really belongs in another place, it shouldn't be tied to these other programs in the ways that it is. So, you know, we don't have an agricultural system in which people are looking at how can we replenish the soil? How can we prevent agriculture from causing climate change? How can we prevent industrial agriculture from polluting communities, polluting water supplies, polluting the air? How can we do that? That's not what it's about. We have an agricultural system that's been captured by corporations. And unless we do something about that, we're not going to be able to change it in a way that makes sense. All order. Mm -hmm, indeed. How, how can the average person listening contribute to this, if people this change, this positive you know, change? Yeah, if people are interested in policy change, the easiest way is to join organizations that are working on these issues, of which there are thousands in the United States. And the easiest way to find them is to Google food advocacy in your particular area, and up will pop dozens of organizations that are working on various aspects of food policy. You know, there certainly are literally thousands of organizations working on hunger relief, probably fewer working on climate change, but there are plenty of them. Lots of them working on issues of pollution. Find one you like and work with it. You know, if you can't work with it, give money to it. I mean, there are lots of ways of supporting this kind of thing. I'm a great believer in writing congressional representatives, in weighing in on policy initiatives, and in doing things that citizens can do. I think everybody who's interested has to find their own way of trying to make a difference. But I think it's quite possible for individuals to make a big difference in food policy. What is the FDA and what are they supposed to do? 
Well, the FDA stands for Food and Drug Administration, and it's the it's a regulatory agency that's part of the Department of Health and Human Services Public Health Service. So it's a health agency, and its function is to regulate the safety and efficacy of drugs and the safety of food. It also is responsible for other kinds of aspects of food, like food labeling and health claims and things that you put on food packages. And it's an agency that's been around in one form or another since Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 2006 and Congress passed legislation establishing the Bureau of Chemistry, which eventually became the FDA. But it's responsible for roughly 80% of the foods in the food supply. The Department of Agriculture is responsible for meat and dairy products. And there's some overlap with eggs and some other foods. It's a messy system with two agencies responsible for the oversight of the safety of the food supply, as if animal waste had nothing to do with the safety of fruits and vegetables, when in fact, animal waste is a primary cause of problems with leafy green vegetables. So it would be good if food safety was combined in one agency. But again, this is for reasons of history. And it's very hard to change things that were established in history. Um, There's one other point about the FDA that really troubles me. And that is it gets its funding from the Agricultural Appropriations Committee in Congress, even though it's a public health agency and the rest of the public health service gets its funding from health committees. But the FDA, for historical reasons, is considered part of the agriculture department from the standpoint of funding. And that's one of the reasons I think that the FDA has been consistently underfunded over the years for what Congress gives it to do. Sure seems like it's been around a lot longer. I think that most What did I say? Did I say 2006? I meant 1906. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sorry. You're not even that old. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. 1906, when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. I think most people believe that the FDA has our back. If it's on the shelves, it must be safe. If it's for sale anywhere, it must be safe. And I'm still really trying to bridge this gap here. Because if that were the case, then how are so many of these products on the shelves? So does the FDA care about the health of Americans? Well, its major function is drug regulation. And again, this is corporate capture. Drug corporations are extremely powerful and they have in some sense captured the FDA. So the FDA is not as rigorous about oversight as it used to be. And food is sort of a stepchild at the FDA. Most commissioners have come from the drug side, not the food side. Food is looked at in the FDA as a big nuisance because people get so upset about food issues. Everybody eats. So everybody has a stake in the system. And, you know, the it's sort of relegated to the um, Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. The people who are in charge of that vary in the rigor with which they try to do things, the most rigorous are really fierce about trying to get food safety brought into a much higher prominence. 
there's a sort of trope about the American food supply that we have the safest food supply in the world. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I'm appalled by the number of recalls and food safety incidents that we have every day. There's another one. And that means that the store is not mind, being minded appropriately. The FDA cannot possibly, I mean, the FDA has a big job. Let's cut them some slack on that because there are, you know, 100,000 schools, hundreds of thousands of restaurants, millions of shipments of foods that come in from international ports. And you couldn't possibly have an agency with enough staff in it to handle all of that. So the agency has to find ways of checking up on things that don't involve too many individuals. I mean, I think it's greatly understaffed for what it's doing. But even if it were fully staffed, it couldn't possibly keep up with the demand. You know, I mean, there have been calls over the years for a separate food agency to try to give food more prominence in, from a regulatory perspective, but those those suggestions never go anywhere. Maybe one day. Well, we can hope. <laughs> we all know, at least I hope we all know, that food labels lie a lot. They mm, cover no. up chemicals under no, names like... <laughs> no, no, they don't lie. They mislead. Big difference. Okay. They cover up chemicals under names like natural flavor. They list ingredients that are so complicated to understand. Most people just gloss over them. So we're trying to educate people about how to read food labels, what to look out for, but it doesn't seem like it's getting us anywhere. I feel like we need to make drastic changes. How do we change consumer behavior? Well, I'm not sure that changing consumer behavior is what a goal should be. The goal should be to produce a food environment that makes it easy for people to make healthy choices and makes healthy choices preferable. So the real question is, how do you change the food environment in a way that makes it easy for people to make healthy choices? And you are absolutely right that the food labels are not a way to do that. You know, I teach master students and trying to teach master students how to read food labels is a real challenge. It's, they're not easy. They're set up to be complicated. When the FDA first was instructed by Congress, and I have to say, the FDA does what Congress wants it to. If you want the FDA to change, you have to get Congress to act because the FDA is an agency of the public health service. This is governed by Congress. The governmental power lies with Congress. So everybody needs to understand that there are only certain things the FDA can do on its own. It went through an enormous process of developing a food label in 1990. And what I have always been amused by was that it came up with a bunch of label designs, which it then sent out for testing, focus group testing, comments and feedback. And the result of all of that was that nobody understood any of the designs, none. And so the FDA picked the one that was least worst understood, but it was never understood. And what you're talking about is what we now see with- No, no, because that was, that was changed again in 2016. There was a big effort to try to change the label to clarify 
some of it, and changes were made in 2016 that did, in fact, clarify some of the issues. It put calories in bigger letters, and it required putting on added sugars. I thought those were very good changes. But they're still very difficult for people to understand, in part because it's compared to what? Yeah, the label compares the amounts of specific nutrients in a food to the daily value. But the daily value is a ceiling for some nutrients and a floor for others. In other words, it's better to eat some nutrients than others. And you have to know which is which in order to understand what food labels mean. You get like 5,000% of one particular vitamin, it can actually be toxic. It might be, but I mean, probably not toxic, but probably not very good for you. But the, you know, you're not supposed to eat very much trans fat. You're not supposed to eat added sugars. You're not supposed to eat saturated fat, although we can argue about how serious a problem that is. But in order to understand the food label, first of all, you have to be able to understand numbers and percentages, which lots of people don't do. And then you have to know whether it's good to eat more of something or good to eat less. And those are complicated issues and they're not set out. I mean, there's nothing on the food label that says eat less of these, eat more of these. That's not how it works. So it's left up to individuals to understand what they mean. And most people look to see how many calories, how much fat and how much sugar there is and don't look at anything else, which I think is fine. I do a lot of label reading. I find it really amusing for the most part. And they have to be, the nutrition facts have to be read in close conjunction with the ingredient list, where the list of what's in the foods is listed in the order of from biggest to smallest. So a lot of the really lovely sounding ingredients, if they're at the bottom of the list, they're probably there in amounts so small that they don't make any difference at all. And you already mentioned the artificial flavors and colors where you have no idea what they are because they fall under the category of artificial flavors or natural flavors. What are those? Hard to know. Yeah. You touched on something that I think is really important with the nutrition labels. I think when most people look at these, they are assuming that there is a nutritionist or dietitian working for somebody, presumably for these companies that are adhering to a general daily health requirement. And they're creating all these food labels to look out for people's health rather than what I think is closer to reality. And I know that they can fudge those numbers and make them look a different way to make it more. I mean, the one easy trick is they just change the serving size, but Talk a little bit about where these values are coming from and the relationship between nutritionists and food product companies. Well, I have a slightly different attitude about it. I think most food labels are pretty accurate and I don't worry about it much. The the amounts of the bad things are usually pretty small and I don't think people should be eating food products anyway. You know, I think healthy diets depend on eating. But I think one of the big problems is sugars and how they calculate sugars and what they call added sugar. And it's mucky. 
Well, the new food label has made that much easier because it puts all of them under the heading of added sugars. And so there they are. You can look at the number and see whether if if it's more than 20% of your daily value, it's got a lot of sugar in it and you probably should leave it on the shelf. But I think most products should be left on the shelf. If you're going to be eating healthfully, you want to eat foods as minimally processed as possible. But yes, food companies hire nutritionists to game the system. And I think it's really important to understand that food companies are not social service agencies, and they're not public health agencies. That's not their job. They're businesses. Their job is to sell food products, grow their sales, and give increasing profits to stockholders quarter after quarter after quarter. That's their job. That's how this system works. And to expect this system to do anything else is to not understand it and to be very unrealistic about what food companies can do. If food companies aren't making money, their stockholders are going to get very unhappy And they don't like that. So they are doing everything possible to sell as much food as they possibly can to as many people as they possibly can at as high a price as they can get away with. That's what food companies are about. So given that situation, of course, they're going to manipulate the label to the extent that they can. They're going to shave the amount of sugars so they don't show up as 20% because 20% is the FDA's cut point for high in sugar. Even if it's not an added sugar, but it still raises our blood sugar. Which well, is yeah, what's... but you don't really worry about the sugars that are naturally present in food. I know people who are worried about the sugars in carrots. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, I guess I'm referring to some of the more creative forms of sugar like monk oh, fruit, they're 50, they're stevia. 50. There are 50 different ways of talking about sugars on food labels, but all of those get lumped together in added sugars under the FDA's labeling rules. So you now know what the added sugars are, even though the ingredient list may show that the, you know, the second and third ingredients are sugar and high fructose corn syrup, and the fourth ingredient is fruit puree, those are all sugars. And they're going to show up on the label. But in the ingredient list, because there are three different kinds, they don't show up as the first ingredient, which is the one that's there in largest amount. They just show up as second, third, and fourth. And you have to know that, which I think is unfair. We could certainly do that better. But the fact that added sugars has its own category, I think, is a big step forward. And we need to give the FDA some credit for that. (laughs) It certainly was strongly opposed. So I think it's worth learning how to read food labels. It's very entertaining once you get the hang of it, because you can look at the way that food companies are manipulating the label and trying to convince people that they're not taking in very much that's bad for them. I was just looking this morning at a label for Doritos, and it said it was 150 calories for 12 chips. I don't know anybody who eats 12 chips. Not me. You know, the whole point about chips is you can't eat just one. So, you know, those are the kinds of things you have to watch out for, because if you eat 24 chips, you've doubled the calories. So you worked on the food pyramid. No. No. 
No. Okay. I wrote Talk, about you I wrote, wrote about the, I wrote about the food pyramid. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is it I, I know it's been very controversial and I don't really know anybody that pays attention to it anymore, but maybe I'm well, it's wrong. It's gone. Nobody pays attention to the food pyramid because it's gone. It stopped in 2010. It hasn't been around for 12 years. In 2010, the government replaced the food pyramid with, which was a triangular shaped food guide with meat and dairy at the top and grains and fruits and vegetables at the bottom, indicating that you were supposed to eat more of plant foods to be healthy. That was stopped in 2010 and replaced by something called My Plate. And My Plate is a round graphic on which half of the plate is fruits and vegetables, a quarter is grains, and a quarter is a category that drives me crazy called protein. And it drives me crazy because there's protein in grains and fruits and vegetables, and also protein in dairy foods, which are off the chart completely. But we have the My Plate chart now. We've had it for 12 years. Whether the government will do a new food guide on the next round of dietary guidelines, I have no idea. Well, it seems like progress. I haven't heard about it, but I'm not in school. So you haven't heard about what? The food plate. The food I mean, plate. Because oh, I stopped no. paying attention to it and following my own a long time ago. But All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the pyramid was much better. I was a great proponent of the pyramid. I thought when they were doing a new food guide, they ought to switch the grains and fruits and vegetables and put fruits and vegetables at the bottom and grains above it. And that that would take care of many of the criticisms of the food pyramid. But I was outvoted. They didn't listen to me. <laughs> and the, uh, this was during the Obama administration. They were very interested in making a sharp change from what had gone on before. And if you go online and go to myplate.gov, there's lots of information about it and what you do. I think nutritionists use it. I don't know anybody else who uses it. And I think it's ridiculous to say that fruits and vegetables are going to be half your plate. Nobody has fruits and vegetables on half their plate, but it does promote more... <laughs> A fruit? You have fruit? Not a fruit. Dinner? No, 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 no. You have I don't, fruit I don't on your eat dinner plate? Fruit. Nobody has There's too fruit much fructose in it. Yeah, nobody has. Oh, you're not going to be worried about the fructose in fruit. I don't. But nobody uh, overdoses on the fructose in fruit. But it's if really you okay. if you just go and eat sugar, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a banana and then you get a. I mean, I'm well, an I anomaly, though. I'm not the average consumer. It matters. It matters a lot how you eat it. The reason that the sugars in fruit are not a problem is that they're accompanied by lots of other vitamins and minerals. Fiber. They're accompanied by fiber and they're digested slowly. They're not a problem and they're not there in high enough amounts to make any difference. You really only should be worried about added sugars. Yeah. Because those are the ones where the problem Well, are. but see, we still get into mucky territory because you can take food pouches that I still see kids. Those are juices. Even, well, <laughs> and even it, it looks like baby food. It's basically mm. pureed fruit. And it's mm. the equivalent of eating like 20 bananas and apples. Right. And kids are sucking on these all day. Yeah, that's a very bad idea. I totally agree. Similarly, smoothies. Yeah. Um, I think you know, or, Jamba Juice, I saw a stat on Jamba Juice and their mm. regular original juice was something like 49 grams of sugar. Yeah, that's more than a sugary soft drink. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good idea. So a lot of what you're talking about, the takeaway for me here is 
it's challenging to read the food labels. We may not ever catch up and be experts on it, but we do have to pay attention because food companies are businesses first and foremost. Their job is not to look out for us. This means that we have to stay conscious. We can't just go through our daily lives and go to the store and just buy anything we see. We do need to be conscious. This also leads to the topic of food marketing, one of your favorite areas. I know you got involved with advertising to children, food advertising to children early on as well. And first of all, I want to touch on what the issue is and how you think we have improved. The issue in food marketing is that food companies' job is to sell products, whether the products are good for you or not. And they're not interested in whether the products are good for you or not. They're only interested in sales. And unfortunately, the products that are least healthful, the ones with the most sugar, salt, and fat, are the ones that are most profitable, the ones that come in packages and so forth. And that's a problem because food marketing is something you're not supposed to notice. There was a reason why I didn't see it. You're not supposed to notice it. It's supposed to- There's a big- circle on the floor in front of the cereal aisle at the grocery store. And then all the colorful cereals and animals are at kids' eye levels and TV commercials. Right. They're trying to sell food. That's all they're doing. I mean, it's not that they're trying to make Americans sick. They're trying to sell food products. And you as an individual have to figure out how to handle that system because you're not getting any help from the society. And I think we need to figure out ways to make the food environment promote health better than it currently does. And that's what we should all be advocating for. And I'm saying this because I have to alert you that I have to get off this in five minutes. Yes. So do you think that we have made progress in that area? And more importantly, are there any companies that you think are standouts that are doing modeling how to run a business and how to market. I'm going to make a blanket statement that all food companies have as their primary goal, the selling of food products, all without exception. Some of them do it better than others. Some of them have healthier products than others, but all of them have to sell food. That's their job. And that puts them in a conflict of interest unless they're selling something like a carrot that's you know undeniably good for you but there's no money in selling carrots there's money in selling processed foods the processing of foods is what adds value to them and makes the companies able to sell them at a higher price so i'm very leery of all kinds of food marketing i know that even the marketers for whole foods Nuts, fruits, vegetables, blueberries, raspberries, pecans, whatever you can think of, are all sponsoring research studies in order to come out with results that they can use to convince you that this particular fruit or vegetable is a superfood. I think it's great to be eating fruits, vegetables, and nuts. You should eat the ones you like and vary them, but not because they're a superfood. So I'm uncomfortable about the whole concept of marketing. I wish it weren't being done. We'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much, Dr. Nessel, for joining me. My pleasure. And where can people find you if they have questions? Yeah, I write a daily blog, foodpolitics.com. It goes out automatically over Twitter. And I've just started an Instagram account, but I don't know how to use it yet. And I will also say for those listening, those who can see 
this is your, no, not your last book. Unsavory Truth is an excellent book and an excellent education on how companies skew the science of what we eat. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you.